Retirement is a time of celebration, a time to reflect on a successful career. But what happens after the celebration is over? On this week's show, we ask the question, what is the mental and physical toll on an athlete who has just retired? G'day and welcome to another episode of Put Your Socks On. We have another great show for you today. My name is Angus Morton and as always, I am joined by fellow retiree, Bobby Julik. Bobby, how are you, mate? Doing well, Gus. Doing well, yeah. It seems like it was just yesterday, but it's already been 12 years since I retired, so I'm really happy to get this episode out. 12 years in the making. Before we jump into talking uh, retirement, let's have a look at this week in the racing. Yeah, this was a busy week. Big stage races. We started off with Algarve, which was a five-day stage race in Portugal with time trial on the last day. Decoyne Quickstep won the first stage with Jakobsen. Remco Ebenpol won the uphill finish on stage two and never really relinquished the jersey. In fact, he actually won the final time trial as well. So very good racing there. He had Seas Bowl from Sunweb winning a sprint finish on stage three. And Miguel Angel Lopez, a.k.a. Superman from Astana, win the big uphill finish. So for me, my takeaways was, yeah, Decoinic quick step, very dominant from the start to the finish in all aspects with a sprint uphill finish and a TT. And it's really confirmation that Remco is an absolute weapon. He seems to be a class act off the bike as well, because after his stage two uphill finish win, he actually dedicated his victory to a member of another team who had a tragedy in his family where he lost his son. And I thought that that was just showing amazing character, amazing maturity from a kid that isn't even legal to drink in the U.S. yet. So I think he is, he's on for a scorcher. And, and yeah, he, after the Tour of San Juan, this is his second stage race win of 2020. Pretty, pretty impressive. Yeah, that's incredible. And uh, maybe he is the character uh, that cycling needs, both uh, on the bike and off the bike. It seems to be shaping up that way. The Ruta del Sol. Another little, yeah, another little five-day race in Spain. Yep, started off kind of the same way where Jakob Fulsong from Astana was able to show an incredible feat of strength in the finishing straight there in stage one, dropping Landa off his wheel. He never relinquished the jersey, and um, he didn't win the final time trial like Remco did, but he was 0.08 0.08 seconds off the win from that. So he started after a bit of controversy. He seems to have shrugged that off and, and uh, has started his season like he did last year in blistering form. So um, the late career blossoming of, of Jakob Fuglsang continues into 2020. Yeah, yeah. What I liked about this race was stage two, Gonzalo Serrano from Caja Rural was uh, won, won the stage. And that's quite impressive because you don't see those smaller teams winning very often in races like this. Jakob Fuglsong won the third stage as well with a real tricky finish. There was a couple guys that went off course right at the end and he kept his his head on a swivel and was able to negotiate the final couple turns well enough to, to be in the position to win. Of note, that stage, we had Brandon McNulty from UAE Emirates uh, in third place. Stage four, we had Jack Hag win the sprint over Fuglsong and Landa. McNulty again showed his, uh, showed his strength, finishing fifth there. The final time trial was won by Dylan Toons from Bahrain McLaren. And like I said earlier, he only finished uh, 0.8 seconds ahead of Fulsong. So 
Overall, Fool's Song took the win ahead of Haig and Landa. Uh, Brandon McNulty was seventh overall, so very good start for him. What can you say about Jakob Fulsong? He was in complete control from start to finish and made it made the right decisions under very, very stressful conditions. On top of what you mentioned about having a little bit of pre-race controversy with his name involved, which obviously didn't affect him at all. But yeah, Brandon McNulty, you know, several top fives on varied terrain. Let's keep an eye on him and let's really support him in those upcoming races. Absolutely. Another young uh, American star who's really stepped up. Be interesting to see if Fuglesang can get that monkey off his back with the Tour de France this year. He always seems to target it uh, and just come undone a little bit. And after a stellar year last year, uh, I'm intrigued to see if he can focus on that race and, and pull at least one, you know, really high, high placing off before the end of his career. The Tour de Holt Var, International de Var, three-day race in Spain, another win by Quintana. Yeah, actually, it was the International Devar et Haute Maritime, which is a three-day yeah. race in in France, in France, which which had two uphill finishes on some pretty iconic climbs. That being the Col d'Ez and on Mont Ferron. Stage one was taken from Anthony Perez from Cofidis. Stage two, Nairo Quintana wins again, totally solo by forty seconds on on the Col d'Ez. Here he comes again, you know, just. Fresh off his win last week, he busts off another hilltop finish this week. He seems to be on a mission, that's for sure. And over a good field as well, with Bardet and Port there behind him. He he seems to be a little bit reborn in the new Arkea Samsic colours. Yeah, yeah. And then with the with the finish on Montferron, which was a used to be a a very epic finish in the early season in a race called the Tour de Med. They haven't used it in a while. Um, there was actually a breakaway won by Julian Bernard from Trek and, um, Port Quintana and Bardet finished together. Thus Quintana was able to, to solidify his overall leader Jersey. So this was a hard race on roads that I'm very, very familiar with in the South of France. And Quintana showed again that he has fire in his eyes this year. Impressive win on the Col d'Ez, but to be able to control two of the best climbers in the world with Port and Bardet on that final climb up to Montferron is, what can you say? And just like Remco, he's taken part in two stage races and won both of them this year. I know, that's impressive. That's really impressive. And the UAE Tour, which has kicked off a couple of days ago, a sprint, a bit of a sprinter's paradise, but also a lot of eyes on Tour de France champion Chris Froome. How's that started? Yeah, this is a seven-day stage race, and we're only into day two of it. Some questions have been answered. Definitely a sprinter's paradise. Pascal Ackerman won stage one. Caleb Ewan won the stage up to Hada Dam today, which was um, his, I think he won it last year as well. So this is his second consecutive year winning. And if you ever see that sprint, it is straight uphill. And to see a little guy like Caleb Ewan just blast those guys for the second year in a row is, is impressive. But they have two uphill stages coming tomorrow on stage three and then on stage five, actually using the same finish line. Today, we saw Chris Frome kind of in the race, but not taking any risks. He was dropped a little bit before the last climb, caught back on, and then just kind of rode up to the finish. So it'll be interesting to see how he goes tomorrow. So we'll give you more final results of that race um, next episode. And last uh, race that we'll talk about this week, and this is a, a big four-day race for the women, the Setemana Ciclista Valencia. That's probably the first after uh, first time they've, the, the, the women have raced together since Tour Down Under. 
Yeah, I'm not sure about that, but um, another good four-day stage race with Emma Norsgaard winning from Norway, winning in a sprint finish on stage one. Anna Vandenbregen from Holland, solo, stage two. Stage three was won by Lizbeth Salazar from Mexico in a two-up break that finished three minutes up the road. And stage four, which I really liked, was American Leah Thomas won ahead of Katie Hall from a little bit of a breakaway. And due to the overall, Anna Vandenbregen still won, but that breakaway on stage four allowed Leah to get up to fourth place and Katie up to sixth place. So very good job from the USA women there. And next week, uh, we've got the end of the UAE tour, plus the opening classics weekend. Yeah, opening classics weekend is always exciting. Everyone loves it. A lot of questions will be answered, but so far... Overall, my take away from this year is Decoin at Quickstep have picked up where they left off last year, winning races all over the place. Trek Segrafredo has also been very impressive and rolling over their end of the season form and success from, from last year. Teams like Lotto Sudal, Michelton Scott, Astana, Arkea Samsek, Kofidis Bora, uh, UAE Emirates. These guys are, are all hitting their stride. But my main question is, where is Ineos and Movistar? I think Ineos has one victory with Owen Duell, and I'm not aware of any victories from Movistar yet. So also quite excited to see the, the boys kicking around at the front of many of these races. Uh, the women have won a couple, uh, race already. Let's, let's start supporting those USA boys out there and get them motivated to fly the W, mm-hmm. as we say in, in baseball. And Bobby, that brings us to the main part of the show. Today, we want to talk about retirement. Uh, It's that point in a person's life or career where they've essentially been working towards or they have essentially been working towards since they were old enough to work, basically. It's that point, usually in their mid to late 60s, where they've acquired enough wealth to live the rest of their days in relative comfort. Well, retirement in cycling is totally different. It's not something that you really think about when you start because there's always something right in front of you to focus on. And to be honest, when you're that young, you feel invincible. Like this is just going to be happening every year and every year. And you don't really look at the end because obviously the end of a cyclist career is a lot earlier than the end of uh, normal people. So yeah, of course you have older teammates at dinner table that are there contemplating retirement for themselves, but it's, it's almost a feeling of, oh man, these poor guys, they're so old. And I, I do remember that being on Motorola and Kofidis and seeing these some of these biggest riders at the twilight of their career. But some guys seem to stop out of the blue, just totally out of the blue, and maybe even a little bit too early when there are riders that seem to stay around too long and just fade away into just a little shadow of what they once were. There, there's no perfect time to retire. You have to feel it. And I think it was Eddie Merckx that said, when I wake up and I don't feel the need to get on my bike, that's when I know my career is over. And I kind of kept those sort of you know, mantras running through my, my mind until the day did come for me one day. And that's it, Bobby. Professional sport is unique in that athletes retire much younger than what is typical within most, different, most societies around the world and almost never with enough wealth to support them to live the rest of their lives. They're often only skilled in their sport and those that do have a tertiary education more often than not haven't practiced since receiving their degree. 
In cycling in particular, this is becoming challenging, right? Because these athletes are now thriving well into their 30s, some into their 40s, meaning that that period between becoming skilled, uh, if they have been, and practicing is growing. But also, it means they have established young families that usually, you know, for non-Western Europeans are typically set up in a foreign country. Their kids are usually at school there. And that usually prolongs the process and ups the stakes of that transition out of the sport, right? You know, on top of all of that, the mental and physical toll of adjusting into what is considered normal life, um, which a majority of the population live after living the abnormal one uh, of a professional athlete, which you've lived, by the way, for more than half of your life. So retirement can be an incredibly tough experience for an athlete and their family. Yeah, we sat down with former Olympian and founder of the Crossing the Line Foundation, Geroid Tawi, a program aimed at helping athletes transition out of their athletic careers and into a more socially standard one. Let's listen to his interview now. And today's guest is Gerard Towi, uh, an Olympic athlete, world rowing champion, uh, was at the Olympic Games in Sydney, Athens, and Beijing. Uh, he now runs an organization called Crossing the Line, which is a really interesting organization that I became uh, aware of and involved in many years ago. And they're basically dedicated to helping athletes transition out of sport and making sure that that process is as smooth as it as it can be. And this is an area that obviously both myself and, and you, Bobby, have gone through. And until you go through it, you don't necessarily expect it to be such a big deal. Geroid, I wanted to basically, I guess, you know, you were a professional athlete. I want to hear a little bit of your backgrounds, you know, within sport, obviously going to the games and being very successful and then sort of transitioning in out, out of that and then how, how you became to be an advocate for athlete career transition. Okay, well, it's kind of, kind of going off the back of what you just said about not really knowing what it's like until you go through it. So when I was, when I was an athlete, I started rowing when I was 10 years old and quickly became obsessed, you know, had no reason to think I was going to the Olympics, but I had a disbelief that I was going to do it someday. And yeah, I became my sole focus uh, for, for, you know, for years, finished school, uh, had no real interest in going to uni, I just wanted to compete and train. I, throughout my rowing career, I, I definitely started to develop, I guess, an awareness of the fact that I did need something beyond the sport, because like, unlike cycling, rowing is very little money, and so you can't really build a decent nest egg to kind of have a bit of padding when you finish. Um, so I decided to get a degree uh, during my career. So I went back to study at Trinity College in Dublin. And I went and did a science degree. And looking back, I kind of go, I was just ticking a box. I was just kind of basically doing what I felt I needed to do. And I didn't really put that much, I guess, thought into why I was doing it or where it was going to take me. It was like, I'm just going to do a degree. Tick. So I retired at the Beijing Olympics and I was actually really ready to finish. Like I was finishing on pretty good terms. You know, I was finishing at the top of my game. I really wanted to finish, which was, you know, something like the sport wasn't taken away from me through injury or anything like that. I had what I thought was a plan and I really kind of left the Olympic Village in Beijing going, cannot wait for the rest of my life. Fast forward a year later and I was just like completely lost, completely just at sea in terms of what I wanted to do, where I'm going. Who am I? Very simple questions to answer when you're an athlete, right? So if you ask yourself the question, who am I? What am I doing today? What am I doing next year? You have those three answers and you've had them since you were the age of 10. But there I was as a like 32 year old and I couldn't answer those questions and it completely messed with my head. So that's how I started uh, my journey into this athlete transition space because I was shocked that this was happening. 
and the thing I was shocked about was like no one actually told me it was going to be hard and so I was just thinking about it's all these athletes who are finished and they're just like living in silence and they don't actually tell anyone else that they're struggling you know so there's no way of, of athletes coming into retirement who know about this stuff know how hard it's going to be and so when I went on online to try and look for support, I fully expected there to be a website of some kind like that would explain to me what I was feeling. Uh, hear some stories from other athletes, that kind of stuff. But there was nothing back in 2008. And that's when I got the idea to start crossing the line. And that's exactly what it is. It's, a, it's a, I guess, a space for athletes to find when they're looking for some kind of answers to their problems when they retire. And before we get into into like a little bit more about crossing the line, two really interesting things you said there was first thing that, that 2008 was not that long ago and there was nothing on, on this subject really. No one was really having this conversation. I don't think people really understand exactly like what happens when an athlete retires. Can you like speak to the, the physical and the mental stresses and the changes um, that they go through because I don't think people realize that this is like chemical reactions and these are like real, you know, like tangible things that go on. Yeah, like it is a very complex issue, right? Because of all those things. It's like there's a, a physical side, there's a mental and emotional side. And the two are very much, you know, you, I, I guess you kind of get hit by a double whammy at the same time. So when you stop competing, if you stop training altogether, and sometimes like lots of athletes do stop training altogether because you need that uh, goal in order to get up out of bed to go to training, right? So when you're an elite athlete, you have to get out of bed to go training every morning because you're going to get your ass kicked if you don't. Whereas when you retire, you're like going, well, there's no real reason for me to do this. So a lot of people, myself included, just like stop training completely. And when that happens, you are, you know, you're, I guess your happy drugs are gone, right? And uh, the, the you realize that when you're, when you're an athlete training every day, you're getting like five, six, seven hours of endorphins, of feel-good chemicals coming through your body every single day. You know, that's obviously with the mask of it being really hard, right? But, uh, it, you know, so in lots of ways, um, sport is actually uh, medication for a lot of athletes. And a lot of athletes have gotten into sport in the first place because, you know, they weren't getting out too well in school. They might have been, you know, a little bit out of the loop. They might have been, you know, running away from something at home. And then, you know, sport became their safe space. And a lot of that is to do with obviously the community that they're in, but also what's happening in their heads and that chemical reaction that's happening in your head every day, which keeps you balanced. So when you take this, the exercise out of it very suddenly, chaos can reign again. And, you know, you can become disorganized, lazy, the whole thing changes. And you can feel very much not like an athlete very, very fast. And the most frustrating thing about it is for a lot of people, and I'm saying this from personal experience too, it's like, you know that the sport benefits your head you know that getting out there on the bike going rolling whatever it is is good for your head but you still don't do it right and uh so 100 <laughs> so, know exactly what you're talking about yeah and so like you know it's, it's kind of interesting because you go like okay well my psyche is that like winning races is more important than my mental health um so you know there's a very very interesting process goes on there and then with the you know the that's kind of tied in then you know obviously to the the identity side uh, so that, that piece I was talking earlier on about, you know, knowing who you are, where you are and where you're going. And that question is, I am a cyclist. I am a rower. I am a, a, I'm an athlete. You actually don't realize how much you rely on that, you know, um, as an identity piece. And that's something that caught me by surprise too. It's like, I, I was arrogant thinking that my identity wasn't as wrapped up in my sport as it was, but. If, when you can't ask, when someone says to you, so what do you do? And you don't have the answer. It's like, wow, 
shit, actually, there's a big part of my life gone now, you know? So, yeah, so there's a lot of, a lot of things to navigate. Like, who, who does this happen to? Does this happen to the superstars, to veteran professionals? Can this happen to, to kids who have just been doing the sport intensely during, like, high school or university? Like, like how quickly does this sort of a thing come on and, and, and is it common? Like, does everyone go through this? It's extremely common and I think that everyone goes through it at, at different degrees, obviously depending on the person in the situation, but I think everyone goes through it as a version of it for sure. And it affects everyone, right? So like yeah, your superstars, it affects, I mean, people have this perception that, oh, look, if they earn loads of money and they're top of the game, they're going to be fine. It's like definitely this is a situation where money doesn't matter. Like actually having lots of money can be detrimental in this situation because you go from, you know, uh, very focused and workmanlike to, to nothing with no direction. It's, it's, it doesn't matter if you have money or not, you know, for the, for the athletes who, who get injured, you know, um, there's, I mean, there's heaps of them out there who, who like people who might've been superstars and they know in their heart, they probably would, could have been, but the sport got taken away from them when they were at college or school. I know lots of those people actually who who have never been able to get over that and like 25, 30 years later are still suffering from that. How do you work with these athletes? Like how do you help and and and, and get help someone transition 30 years later who still has this identity as a as an athlete, as a cyclist or a rower, but is clearly no longer that? Well, it's interesting because we work with quite quite high achieving individuals who've now like are absolute gone entrepreneurs, like not because of us, but they're just that you know, what they do now. And they're absolutely brilliant at their jobs, but they still feel like failures because of what happened in their sporting world. Quite often, those those people have either not achieved their their potential, or you know, what they feel they haven't achieved their potential, or there are people who've been cut by the sport, either by injury or by deselection. And there's lots of people out there who are still feel burned by bad selection decisions, you know, being treated like shit by you know their coaches or whatever. And what we do with them really is is to it's just to get a bit of perspective on what they did achieve, like recognize that the level that they went to was a very good level. Athletes, you know, like I went to the Olympics three times. I never, I never got a medal. Um, and that really, that really bugged me for a while. But then you kind of have to get this perspective of going, hang on, like you're still in the top tier <laughs> and it's a very rare place, but I was feeling like a loser. And, you know, that's, that's a, and that's athletes the world over. And so it's really about getting that perspective on, on what they did achieve. Um, uh, and really they had got to work on being counseled to find peace with what, what happened in their sporting career. Cause it's not going back, you know, and, uh, and uh, you just have to use it as a positive experience in your life rather than actually letting it bug you. And so then, like, to that point, I guess, like, I don't know, it seems to me, like, is there a problem with the way that professional sport is and the way that we're driving these athletes to be these people knowing their careers are going to end? Or is the problem lying in that we need more awareness around this and there needs to be like a system implemented right from the get go? I think uh, a system implemented right from the get go is the way is the way forward. And, you know, and with the awareness around it, I think that like, I don't think there's any athlete in the world who doesn't buy into the whole, you know, I've got to focus on this thing and it's going to be super intense. It's going to, it's going to change my life. You know, it's going to restrict things. It's going to be time away from families. Like it's a unique situation you're walking into, but everyone walks into it pretty much with their eyes open. I think the thing that, that they don't, that they mightn't have the awareness on is how hard it's going to be when they finish. And so if, if we can get, if systems from the get go is, is definitely um, the way forward, 
But what we find working with current athletes is that the engagement is very, it's very hard to get people engaged, you know, because um, there's a couple of reasons for that. One is that like they might think that they're taking their eye off the ball by doing something else or the system isn't, doesn't cater for them to do something else. Now on that, like um, I, I know like personally, but also anecdotally talking to other athletes um, and there's some research coming out now that's, that's showing that athletes who do something else other than their sport actually perform uh, better and they stay in their sport longer because two reasons for that. One is that it's the subconscious, I guess, having a subconscious calmness that you're actually are taking care of your life post-sport but also the fact that if you do something else, it's better for your brain in terms of training because you 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 don't think about the training session you just did anymore. You have to do something else. So it keeps you fresh and it keeps you mentally engaged in your sport, you know? So it'd be really good to get young athletes, you know, education and awareness around that so that they that they actually see it as a performance benefit rather than something that they have to do as a tick box exercise. One of the things that uh, I noticed being an American athlete and having to move everything over to Europe or, you know, Gus, you know, Australian kids, they can't just wing it. You know, they have to make a massive effort to have a basis of life skills, right? But when you're a superstar in France or Italy or Belgium, everywhere you go, you're a rock star and people are catering to you. So I, I really felt that we, as living so far away from Europe and having to uproot our lives, we had to depend a lot more on our own life skills, developing those life skills, and especially our family and our support crew. And those people were absolutely genuine because you didn't get to see them very often. But I noticed with, with those superstars in, in Europe that have everything done for them, you know, they're still living at home, their parents are, their mom is still cooking their food and still washing their clothes, that that seems to be a little bit of a pitfall. So to those young riders out there at the beginning of their career, in the middle, or even at the twilight of their career, what are some of these tricks that we can talk about right now, which will hopefully be able to influence them in a positive way moving forward? What are some of those little tricks that you would suggest? Well, I think you kind of hit the nail on the head with saying, you know, you have to do those things to survive, you know, the um, relocating to Europe. I mean, that's just giving you life skills that you're still using to this day, you know. So every single thing like that is a learning opportunity and it's actually a transferable skill that you can take anywhere in life afterwards. So the trick that the thing that we try and get athletes to do is to, first of all, do a lot of stuff themselves. Try not to like fall into this, you know, um, having everything done for them type situation, but also looking at, you know, always looking at what they're learning from the sport that they can take forward into real life. So when you move on, if you go into a job interview, for instance, they're going to walk in, they're going to like the fact that you're a professional cyclist. They're going to say, that's awesome. Well done. But what can you do for our company? And that athlete has got to be able to articulate what it is that they did in their sport. That's going to be beneficial for that company and for that job. So really that trying to trying to trying to get them talking like this and trying to shape their story, their own personal story and their cycling journey, but in a very practical and effective way for any industry that they're walking into. The other thing is also that if they're not going to walk into a job, if they're a lot of athletes look at look at um running their own businesses. You know, there's heaps of them that run their own businesses and see that in cycling a lot. And it's just 
getting them to recognize that when you're an athlete, you've got the most amazing opportunity to network. You know, you've got you're rubbing shoulders with CEOs of companies that are sponsoring uh, cycling teams, for instance, and they come to the, the, the big races. You know, don't sit in your bus and, uh, and look at them from outside. Go and talk to them. These guys could give you an opportunity in years to come. They could be investors in your new business. They might give you a job. So like, and you know, in the real world, it's very rare for an employee of a company who might be working there for 10 years to even meet the CEO once in the whole time they've been there. But athletes have really got these people in their faces and seizing that opportunity, very, very important because once it's gone, it's gone. Because when you retire, okay, you might be known as a really good ex-writer, ex but the new crop are the ones that matter. And they're the ones who are going to get the opportunities there. You know, so really seize that moment, recognize where you are and, um, and take full advantage of that opportunity. The question I'd like to ask you is, have you been involved with cycling and do they have an athlete transition? Do they take that athlete transition seriously? Is there any teams that you've worked with directly? Yeah, so I worked with cycling for a couple of years and I actually was working with, um, I met Michael Drapak about five years ago. Drapak with the uh, development team down here in, in Australia who then co-owned Cannondale Drapak obviously for a couple of years and then EF Drapak recently. So uh, Michael's a big advocate of um, athlete transition and the importance of being prepared. That's runs through the ethos of his whole team and um, Gus, Gus rode for them in the past. Um, so their whole, the whole thing was based around, you know, the holistic development of athletes. You couldn't ride for the team unless you were doing a degree or a job. Um, so I met him years ago when I was getting crossing the line going. And, uh, and when he, when he partnered with Cannondale in 2007, 16, 17 and 18, he brought me on to work with the riders on the, on a one-on-one -on -one capacity for the team. So it was a very interesting uh, time because you know, I got to see cycling up close and personal and, you know, realize how, how much of a unique sport it is. I think that, you know, unless you're a cyclist and or someone who's actually been at the races and saw it, you kind of, you don't really understand how unique of a sport it is. Like it's just, there's so many different <laughs> things that, um, that go into the makeup of a top cyclist, right? Like it's, it's, it's that mixture of, um, of endurance athlete, but also, you know, daredevil. I was, I was amazed by it, but it also gave me a good insight into how difficult it is actually for cyclists, I think in particular to transition because a couple of things, I mean, all the traveling for one, uh, people are very dislocated uh, in terms of traveling all the time. Also, I found that this most surprising thing I found about cycling was how isolated or isolating it is. Like I, I had this assumption that teams used to train together. And that people used to like train in one spot and everyone trained together, but then realizing that even if guys are living in the same town, they're on different training programs. So they very rarely ride together. And so you've got guys living overseas, they go training on their own, they go back to their apartment. And especially now, like a lot of them would just sit on social media and they might go like days without even speaking to anybody. And that's, that's going to be hard in your head long term, right? So. So it's very interesting. And also, uh, with cycling too, because it's such a, you know, a niche sport, I suppose, and it's got so many special things about it. You know, the DSs, people that run the teams, you know, they, they come from cycling backgrounds or some of them ex-pros themselves. That's an interesting dynamic too, because they never actually get to leave the sport and they might actually think that this, all I can do is cycling. This is what I'm good at. And it is, they're experts at what they do. But sometimes, and I've seen this in other sports, lots of coaches who go from, uh, being an athlete into a coach 
And then they realize after 20 years, oh man, all I've done is this sport. And they start to resent it because they feel trapped. So yeah, I, I found cycling fascinating. I find it fascinating. I think it's a very tough sport. I think I think cyclists do find the transition maybe a little bit more challenging than a lot of other sports people. Before we, we, we wrap up here, are there any examples of sports or programs like to your point you mentioned Michael Drapak and 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 I like I I have to probably stop and say like he absolutely or that program absolutely like saved my ass because I was forced to get a degree um well you know I you know voluntarily did it but was like was part of my contract and as a result like I was able to transition to something post sport and and even and that transition was tough but at least I kind of had that are there any other examples or are there any sports that maybe cycling should look to and, and, and particularly that the UCI to make some sort of a transition program mandatory? Yeah, I think that um, actually transition programs should be mandatory. And like kind of getting back to your point earlier, it's, it's uh, the only the ones who are engaged most in this are the ones who have been touched by it. Like they can actually see their mortality as an athlete through an injury or it's coming towards the end of their career. They can start feeling that shit, I need to be prepared. Um, so in terms of the 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 uh, the best practice model in this area, like the no one country or no one sport has cracked it yet. It's still a, a complete, you know, it's still in development. What we've done just over the last couple of years is we've actually created a program, which is the Australian Olympic team have, are being given it this year, and that's that's it's really good. And so over the, over the years, I've been working this space. And looking at athlete engagement, what what will what will work and what doesn't, and what we've prepared and what we've done is a program which is a process. So athletes are used to following a process, a training program, a racing schedule every day of their lives. When they do this stuff, generally there's no process. They can they, they kind of do this work and go, oh, why am I doing that? There's no reason for me to do it. So what we do have done with our program is we have created a step by step program where. At the end of it, they will get a mentor and a work experience placement and perhaps even a job. Um, and it starts with education, online learning and one-on-one -on -one coaching. Because um, one of the other uh, parts of this is that when you finish your career, having had a coach your whole time, then you go out and suddenly you don't have that person anymore. Well, you'd still need that person, not that particular coach, but a different person that you can, who can push you along, basically. And so we put them into the system as well. So following a process towards a goal, uh, I think that's the only way that this transition work is actually going to work. Uh, just the only way the athletes are going to engage with it. So yeah, just to answer your question about what, what countries or what models, uh, I can't recommend any, to be quite honest with you, <laughs> with you, apart from our own, because everyone is still working it out. You know, like over in the States, for instance, like, you know, the, um, the NCAA and the you know, that collegiate system, I, th I feel with our transition program for the Australian Olympic team that we've done something pretty special and it's a kind of um, to be, you know, to be watched over the next year because we've only just started it. But uh, I think cycling needs to have its own. I think the thing is like each sport is very unique um, and it, you have to incorporate that uniqueness into any program you're going to develop. I uh, wholeheartedly agree as someone who was fortunate enough to, to um, find myself in a program that helped me transition. 100% mate thank you so much uh for dialing in from across the world uh to give us to give us your time and to give us some really interesting insight in a conversation that's definitely not being had enough crossingthelinesport.com is your website right people should go there athletes should go there can they donate can they support like how can they help this program spreading the word what, what what's the best way to do that yeah so we're um we're a fully registered charity so uh, tax tax deductible donations are are able to be 
done and will be well received. And that's all on the website. You can just click on the How You Can Help page and, and it's that. Because what we do is we actually give scholarships to athletes to give them this stuff for free because a lot of athletes don't have any money. Uh, a lot of athletes finish in debt and sometimes we get athletes who are really on their knees. So uh, money is quite a barrier for them. So we try and remove that barrier. Yeah, Mate, you're doing fantastic work. Thanks for having me on the show. I really appreciate being asked to talk about this topic because you said it's very important and the more airtime it gets, the better. I'm sure we'll uh, we'll have you back on in the future as we have more episodes that surround different areas of, of athlete mental health and, uh, and the direction the sport needs to take um, in a holistic sense. Cheers, mate. Thank you so much for your time. Cheers, guys. Bobby, that was uh, a really, really interesting conversation with Geroid. Uh, I've known him for many years and, and have been fortunate enough to work with him uh, in, and help me you know, transition out of sport at the different times that I've done that uh, in my life. I want to know for you, Bobby, like, what was the immediate post-retirement period like? Did you have a plan? You know, had you given it much thought or did it, you, know, you just sort of arrived there and were like, I guess I'll just see what happens? Yeah, that's kind of interesting. But back in the day when one of my heroes, Bernard Hinault, retired at the age of 32 for, for some reason, I just said to myself, I was going to retire on my 32nd birthday because he was born in November. I was born in November. You know, I hadn't even started. I think I was like 14 or 15 at that time. But I said, yeah, that's what I'm going to do. I'm going to retire when I'm 32 because Bernard Hinault did it. Oddly, I was quite close to having to retire when I was 32 because... I had a couple bad years and I didn't have a contract, but I was able to find my way back onto Bjarne Reese's CSC team and got a second wind. Wound up retiring five years later in 2008 at the age of 37. I think that the most important thing to remember when you retire is to make sure that you left it all out on the road. And that you finish on your own terms. Sometimes that's taken out of your control due to the fact of injury, sickness, or just the simple fact that you know, something as simple as your, your, your team folding. But if that's not the case, there would be some, some bitterness, some maybe some axes to grind, because you, you're going to be living the rest of your life now not as a professional athlete. And I think that's a very important thing. I once had, when I was contemplating at 32, saying that my career was over, a teammate of mine said, are you comfortable admitting to yourself that you're not a professional athlete anymore? And obviously the answer to that was no. I felt like I had something more to give, even though no one was willing to give me that, except, except Bjarne Reese. So ending on your own terms, leaving it all out there on the road, that is going to really be helpful moving forward because, you know, if you're hanging on to something that you could have done or you should have done, but you didn't do and you can't get by that, that's going to lead down the road, maybe tucked away in a corner of your mind. That's going to create some, some issues moving forward for sure, but on the ground. But enjoy your time as a professional athlete. Treat other people the way that you would want to be treated and make sure you leave it out on the road before you make that decision to move on to the next phase of your life. Um, the real world waits for no one, but take it from me, it's not as scary as it sounds. And Bobby, that is all we have time for on today's show. Thank you everybody for listening. That's another week of Put Your Socks On. Uh, I want to say a huge thank you to Gerai Toei who made the show possible this week. 
head to his website and donate crossingtheline.com. He is a charity, so you can, as he said, make tax-deductible donations. Thank you to everyone for listening along and supporting the show. We're on Twitter, at Fizopod, P-Y-S-O-P-O-D, or at that is Gus, uh, which is myself on Instagram, or at Bobby Julik, which is Bobby, obviously. If you don't subscribe, please do. We're on Apple Podcasts and now Spotify, apparently. So moving up in the world. On both those networks, we are under Put Your Socks On, so please subscribe, share it to your friends, tell everyone about it. You know, you know, you know what to do. That is all from me. I am Angus Morton. And I'm Bobby Julik. Stay tuned next week when we talk about how the world has changed with the sharing of data over the years. I think we're going to have a really special guest with that. But as always, don't forget to put your socks on. Nice one. <laughs>